morning, church. We're going to pick up in Galatians chapter 5. Go ahead and turn your Bibles to Galatians chapter 5. We'll continue our series. Just a, about two to three weeks left. Of Paul teaching this church and this, these people about the freedom that we find in his grace. So we're going to pick up in Galatians chapter 5, verses 13 and 14 and 15. 13 through 15 this morning. So let's read together. If you need a Bible, there's a Bible on the back table or the verses will be on the screen. I want you to read it with us. Galatians chapter 5 verses 13 through 15. It says, For you are called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. Let's pray. Father God, I just thank you for your word. God, I thank you this morning that the banner we gather under is not my opinion. God, it's not, Lord, our own agendas, God, but it is your holy infallible word. Father, I pray that we would just humble ourselves before you, God. Speak to us, God, in this moment. God, convict us. Show us the places where you'd have us to move, God. Show us the things that you'd have us to, to begin to, to put at your feet. God, we come with brokenness. God, we come with fear. We come with doubt this morning. Father God, I pray that you speak to us through your word. Give us the courage and the confidence that we need to begin to live in the freedom you've called us to. Lord, we love you and thank you in Jesus' name. So as we talk about, as we've gotten into Galatians chapter 5, we've really seen Paul kind of really hit into overdrive. The challenge for us as Christians, what our living in freedom truly looks like. You know, and so this week, if I had to kind of sum it all up into a subtitle or into something for us to understand where I believe that Paul is really trying to hit home as he's spoke about grace, as he spoke about freedom, and he starts to kind of lay out how we utilize that freedom in our lives, I believe it's this, that we would not, or that we don't abuse grace. That we would not abuse grace. And so, you know, as this week as I was preparing and I was getting ready for what we were going to talk about this morning, I started to think about the freedoms that I've experienced in my life, you know, and, and what that did is it brought me back to when I got my license. And so maybe you guys remember that, you know, up to that point, we did not have the freedom to partake of the, the beautiful activity of driving, right? Uh, whether it was, you know, because of the law, because of what it told us that we could not. Uh, because we were not of age, we had not met the requirements to be able to participate in that particular uh, activity. You know, and so the, I remember, you know, that when I finally gained that freedom, you know, you go in, you take the test, you do the drive, you're evaluated, everything's laid out. You finally gain that freedom. It's a good day, right? Mostly for the parents because they say, now you can go pick up groceries, you can go drive kids here and there, right? I remember doing a little bit of that. I'm looking forward to that day myself. But, you know, in that freedom, when now finally I can participate in this activity that I prior to was not able because of the law, there were still expectations, right? There was still this guiding principle, this participation in the law that was 
guiding me to where I couldn't jump in my vehicle and just drive as fast as I wanted. I couldn't drive anywhere I wanted. I couldn't blow through the signs that were warning me to do particular things or to take particular precautions. That even in this new freedom that I had, that there were still things laid out before us to protect us, to give us purpose, to give us precision in the way at which we navigate in this new freedom. You know, and so as we've talked about, kind of with this idea of freedom in mind, as we've talked about freedom, and the fight that Paul has been fighting is against the religious Judaizers or the religious Jews that were coming in and trying to kind of add to God's grace because the argument was, and the argument still is today in certain parts of Christianity, if you preach grace, then won't people just live and do and act however they want? That's the question. That's the question I used to ask when I was outside of it and didn't understand it. That's the question I get today is if God's grace is not dependent on my earning it, then what is the point of doing anything good? Right? It's a reasonable question. And then this is the very question that Paul moves forward in answering. You know, and what even through this study that maybe we've touched on in bits and pieces... But what Paul begins to lay out, what he wants us to understand this morning, is that freedom is not the right to do what we want. But it is the, the ability, the ability to do what we ought to do. That in Jesus, through his grace, we finally have the ability and the power and the strength to do the things that we should do. That it's not the opportunity to do just what we want. And Paul will show us why that's the case. Gospel freedom, what gospel freedom does, and what the purpose of gospel freedom, when we preach the gospel of Jesus and the grace of God by faith through Christ, is that we're preaching a message that takes away the guilt of sin. That takes away the guilt of sin. That takes away, as we've talked about over the last few weeks, the bondage of sin, the bondage of shame, the bondage of guilt that keeps us cowering in corners. That keeps us from stepping boldly into the calling that God has for us. And so the gospel of grace, the reason why and the belief for me that, that us as a church, we will constantly push a gospel of grace because I truly believe that change comes from the inside, not from behavior modification, not from laying out do's and don'ts and saying that unless you do this, God will not save you. Unless you do this, you will not be molded into the image of God. But it also doesn't mean that there isn't this, just like when we got our driver's license, there isn't this guiding principle ahead of us that we should be pursuing, that we should be following. That is a representation of the freedom that we have. And so not only does gospel freedom take away the guilt of sin, but the idea and the hope is that in that gospel of grace that it eats away at the motivation to sin. That over the growth and the experience of our spiritual life and the process God is doing with us, that eventually over time that that gospel will eat away at that motivation of sin. You know, I can see that in my own life. That you know what? There are still lingering effects of sin in my life even today. But I can, I can, I can visually communicate it and visually like see where God has taken motivation to sin away from me over the course of my, of my life. I can promise you that it didn't happen day one. That I put my faith in Jesus day one. 
Those motivations are still there. And you know what? In a lot of ways, people would have made me to believe that God didn't really save me. That if I still had the desire to sin, then God must not have really saved you. That's not how it works. Remember, every time we've talked about the gospel of grace and the saving work of Jesus, it's been talked about in a way of completing. That it is in process. That God is doing something with us. That it's not this magical moment that always happens. Can God completely change the motivations and desires of a human being? Absolutely. Does it happen like that with 90% of people? No, it doesn't. And if we're honest with ourselves and we would truly communicate the desires of our hearts and minds as we've navigated our Christian lives, then we still, within us, have motivations for sin. But the hope and the desires, as we completely communicate the grace and the gospel of Jesus, that those motivations are worn down. And that we move from being motivated to sin to being motivated to being obedient to God and His law. That we move from being motivated to do the things that are in rebellion to God and defeating our selfishness and are motivated to do what is best for God's kingdom and what is good for others. And so this is where Paul is bringing us into because he tells us that the gospel doesn't lead us to, to, a, to live a guilty life since God has lovingly accepted us, but it also does not lead us into an unholy life because God who has accepted us is perfectly holy. God is still holy. And God still expects holiness. But remember that the way in which we navigate the Christian life isn't in our own righteousness, but in the righteousness of Jesus. But within that, the Christian experience, the experience of joy, the experience of God's freedom in our life is dependent on how we choose to navigate these spaces. Because even though we don't depend on the law to save us, we still follow it to sanctify us. And when we talk about sanctification, we're talking about that molding process that God is doing in our life. Taking us from who we were in our old selves, molding us into the image of Christ. And that is the eternal, that is the, the process of our life here on earth. Is God molding us into the image of Jesus. And so Paul's going to give us a couple things this morning that I believe we see from this text as he communicates how we would not abuse the gospel of grace for our growth, for the experiential um, uh, uh, enjoyment of God's freedom. And so he begins to tell us how we use our gracious freedom. The first thing this morning, how we use our gracious freedom. Because remember, even last week when we talked about standing firm and holding on to what God has given us, there is action. That God has given us freedom to do something. He has not given us freedom to sit. And so he says in Galatians 5.13, he says, For you are called to freedom. I love how Paul constantly does this. Paul constantly references who we are. He always references kind of our, our doctrinal position in Jesus. That we are justified. We are in Him. That this is where you are. Before he gives instruction. It, read all of Paul's epistles. He always establishes identity before he starts giving instruction. Because he wants it. He knows. Paul believes this. And for churches, we get this so backwards sometimes. That we push instruction before we present identity. But what Paul always does in all his epistles. Is that he presents identity before he presents instruction. Because he knows if we know who we are in Jesus then we have a true motivation that we understand that we're not earning our place at his table, but we're working because of our place at his table. And so he says, he reminds them, for you are called to freedom. You know, this wasn't a freedom that belonged to us or that we earned, or that there was a freedom that was provided for us in Jesus. 
And so he's reminding us of that. And then he begins to tell us how we use our freedom. In Galatians 5.13, he says, Do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh. And remember who he's talking to in this same verse. It says, For you are called to freedom, brothers. So he's talking to groups of believers. He's talking to Christians. So we're not talking about a people. We're not talking about an unbelieving world. We're not talking about those who have not uh, put their faith and trust in Jesus. He's talking to Christians. And he's telling them that there is something you have to do. Do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh. You know, and over the past few weeks, we've discussed that the fullest experience and expression of our freedom only happens through our actions and our choosing and our participation. That we can be free in Christ. I truly believe we can be free in Christ. We can, we can have at our disposal everything that he's offered us and hardly ever truly experience it in our day-to-day -day walk. Because like Paul says, as believers, that we're not using that freedom properly. You know, and so he's telling them here that don't use, that don't let your actions reflect your old self. Typically, when the Bible talks about the flesh, it's referencing who we used to be. You know, we also know that the flesh still continues even when the Spirit of God dwells within us. But that flesh is tethered to who we used to be. It's tethered to our old self. It's tethered to the sinful nature that drove us prior to knowing Jesus. And so he's telling them, he says, do not use the freedom that God has given you to continually pull at that tether that is tied to your old motivations. You know, and this is a place that I think we constantly find ourselves as Christians being drawn back to old motivations. Being drawn back to the flesh. Being drawn back to what, uh, what, what used to offer us comfort. Being drawn back to what used to empower us. Being drawn back to used to what identified us. Being drawn back to used to what be our God. What used to be the idol, the thing we elevated in our life. This is the constant struggle. This is the constant tension in the Christian life. Fighting this idea of how we utilize our freedom. And so what Paul's telling us is he says, don't let this freedom be your excuse to live sinfully. And when we say that, we're, we're talking about feeding into the flesh, giving ourselves over to lesser things and, and allowing it to rob us of the experiential grace that God has offered to us. Too many of us as Christians, we are giving ourselves over to lesser things and being obligated to those things and missing out on the freedom that God has for us. You know, because the, the truth of the matter is, and what we've talked about just in mind with our freedom and having those guiding principles before us, is that, that we are saved wholly and freely by the grace of God. But because of that, it doesn't mean that we don't constantly pursue the holiness and perfection God has laid before us, or that we don't even pursue to obey His law to some extent. But in reality, that we're more obligated to obey the law. Why? Because we have more reason to love God than we ever have before. If we understand what He's done for us, we have more reason to obey God than we ever had before because of what He's offered to us, because of what He's given to us, because of this freedom. You know, and so the constant tension in Christian faith is the tension between grace and works. And we talked about this when we went through the book of James and we talked about that tension between grace and works. You know, that the reality of it is, is that we are called to works. 
And we're, we're, our works aren't what saves us. Our works aren't what makes us right before a holy God. But our works are an expression of the work that God has done in us. And it is an uncontrollable manifestation. You know, and so Peter says this in 1 Peter 2, 16 and 17. He says, live as people who are free. There is a choosing that we must do as Christians to live as those people who are free. Not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil. But living. Living as servants of God. Honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. Fear God. And honor the emperor. You know, and some of those things are tough. You know, I mean, even if you think about it in our climate today, to say the words honor the emperor, I mean, how that translates into our current day and age, that's tough, especially for Christians today, to honor the leader of your country. And so when God's showing us how this freedom works, I, I, we can see even from that verse how freedom is truly expressed and how we truly live in that freedom that God has given us. And that he's already made clear that the freedom is not for ourselves or the flesh. That the freedom God has given us is not for us to go out and to do whatever we want. It's not for us to say, well, you know, God's grace saved me, so it doesn't matter how I live and act. It absolutely does. Because how we live and act is an expression of how we either understood or accepted or embraced the grace God has given to us. And if we would ever use God's grace as a reason to sin, then we have drastically misunderstood God's grace and what he's done for us. Because God has not freed us to indulge ourselves in whatever sin makes us happy. Otherwise, we've completely missed it. God has not saved us for ourselves. God has not saved us to pour back into our flesh. That is not what he's done for us. Because we know what the end of flesh is. The end of flesh is selfishness. The end of flesh is oppression. The end of flesh is destruction. You know, and so within this, where we get the other end of it is the fear of the legalists is that liberty will be used as an opportunity for the flesh. And so this is that, that struggle with churches is that they would rather never speak about God's grace because they believe that they even remotely speak about God's grace, then it's going to open up the floodgates for sin. And so then we end up weighing on the side of legalism as they're teaching uh, the people in Galatia here where you have to be circumcised, you have to follow these, into these ceremonies, you have to do all these rituals to get to God because it's all these holy actions. And if you'll do those, then God will accept you. And we in churches, regardless of the denomination, do the exact same thing in so many ways. Because we're afraid. Because we don't trust the grace of God enough to just preach the grace of God purely. But that's what Paul is trying to bring them into. Because a lot of times we don't trust God for justice. We believe that justice is in our hands. That we, we, we don't want to preach grace because we're afraid that people will get away with doing the wrong thing. Church, God says, justice is mine. Vengeance is mine. I will handle it. You be true to the gospel and I'll take care of individual people. Jude 1.4, it says, For certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation. Ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality deny our only master, the Lord Jesus Christ. 2 Peter 2.9, it says, Then the Lord knows how to rescue the ungodly from trials and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment. 1 John 2.19, They went out from us, but they were not of us. If they had been of us, they would have continued with us. He says, trust God's grace. 
Because those who have not truly experienced it or know it, they won't be there at the end. Those who choose to abuse it, God says, I know how to handle those. But preach the grace of God. Preach the grace of God. And this freedom that he tells us, the evidence of this freedom is that if this freedom is used for self-indulgence, it is not true freedom. And that person is still in slavery. And so for us, as we consider that in our own lives, that if we're utilizing this freedom we think we have by the grace of God for ourselves, then we're still in slavery. Because we're enslaved to the most tyrannical God that there is, and that's ourselves. We are horrible gods. We are horrible dictators. We are horrible masters to ourselves. Because we're so selfish. We're, we're so, we get so angry. We sling shame and guilt at ourselves more than our God in heaven ever would. We are horrible masters. And so if, we are, if our, we're using our freedom in Christ for self-indulgence, we are still in slavery. But we can't withhold presenting grace out of fear of its abuse. But instead we offer praying it is the motivating factor for life living and life giving. And that the grace that we give and the grace we share would not be as... This quote says that I'm going to read cheap grace. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, a man who was martyred during World War II, we've talked about him several times. I love his, his stuff. He says this, Cheap grace is the grace we bestow on ourselves. Cheap grace is preaching of forgiveness without requiring repentance. Baptism without church discipline. Communion without confession. Cheap grace is grace without discipleship. Grace without the cross. Grace without Jesus Christ living and incarnate. If we belittle the grace of God by abusing it, then we have robbed it of its power. God's grace is not cheap. God's grace is not cheap because, for one, it required a life. It required a blood sacrifice in Jesus. And because that grace was not cheap, the least that we do is pursue it. You know, and that's not meant to bring shame and guilt on us because remember, because of God's grace, we're free of shame and guilt. But we're free of that shame and guilt to pursue Him. We're free of that shame and guilt to pursue Him passionately. And then he continues on explaining how we utilize that freedom. And he says in verses 13, and the second half of 13 and 14, he says, but this is how you use your freedom. This is the greatest expression of our freedom. He says, but serve one another. He says, for the whole law is fulfilled in this, that you shall love your neighbor as yourself. That our freedom isn't for ourselves. Our freedom is for others. He says that the antidote to grace abuse is selfless surrender and service. That the reason God has freed us from our sin is to not indulge ourselves in what makes us happy and comfortable. But He has freed us from our sins he has freed us from our guilt. He has freed us from our shame. He has freed us from our fear. Not for ourselves. But for those around us. He says this. He says the flesh expects others to conform to us. And it doesn't care about others. But 
When we through love serve one another, we conquer the flesh. Do we see, do we, do we see how that works? That if we are feeding into the flesh, it will constantly be the victor. But the moment we begin to strain its supply of nutrition, as soon as we begin to kind of quench its life support, that's when we begin to conquer the flesh. That's when shame truly begins to lead. That's when the power of temptation truly begins to lead because we've stopped focusing on ourselves in the flesh and we've gotten the source of life off of us to the other people around us, to God in heaven and His honor and His glory. And you know what begins to happen to the flesh? And for my medical people, they'll understand this, is that flesh begins to die. It begins to deteriorate. It begins to get black. It begins to fall to pieces because the source of life has been cut off. The blood flow that was feeding into the flesh has been strained. He says that the whole law is summed up in this. So what is Paul telling us? He says we are not saved by the law, but we are saved to continue to pursue the perfection of the law. I know that sounds so crazy, but for us, we need a moral standard, right? We need something. That's the whole reason the law existed. The law never existed to save people. The law existed to point people to something better. I mean, in reality, if we want to squash any argument with any non-believer, any atheist, or anybody pushing against the existence of a God, ask them where morality came from. We all live by a moral code that is outside of ourselves. It has to be. We didn't drum this up. And if there isn't a God that is a moral standard, then what's the point of being moral at all? If there's not an ultimate moral standard outside of us, then what's the point? What's, why is anything wrong? But deep down within us, and the Bible tells us that God has put eternity in man's heart, I believe that every single one of us, believer or non-believer, we understand the moral law because there is a God that established it. And he is pointing us to do good. He is pointing us to something greater. And that's why he continues to draw us into the law, not to be saved, but to sanctify us, to mold us, to show us that there is something greater. Matthew 7, 12, he says, so whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them. For this is the law and the prophets. Matthew 22, 40, on these two commandments depend all the law and prophets. He's saying, I mean, the whole Old Testament is nothing but law and prophets. And so he's basically saying the entirety of Christian history is dependent on this one thing that you would love God and love your neighbors and the Bible just echoes this constantly and what is that calling us to do to get outside of ourselves to stop feeding the flesh to stop feeding our temptation to stop feeding our weakness to stop feeding what is drawing us away from God and his gracious freedom and start channeling that source of life outside of ourselves to start channeling it into our kids to start channeling it into our spouse. To start channeling it into our community. To start channeling, channeling it into the needy around us. What the gracious freedom of God does is it takes away with our old selfishly motivated and unloving law obedience and replaces it with grace-driven motivation to obey the law out of love for others. And you know what? This isn't something we have to guess about. This is the exact pattern set by Jesus. He had more liberty than anyone else in history. 
I mean, think about it. The God of the universe dwelling on earth as man. I mean, we think about it. If we had that power, listen, we would have been flying around and shooting things out of our hands long before Marvel was around. Right? If we had that kind of power to create and to do whatever we wanted to do, we would have unbelievably abused it. But the pattern set by Jesus is that the man with the most liberty than anyone else who ever walked on earth, he used his liberty through love to serve others. He wasn't born into a palace. He was born in a dirty manger. He didn't live an extravagant life. He lived under the guidance and the leadership of a carpenter. And, you know, I've gotten the opportunity to do a couple of uh, chapels this past weekend. You know, we were talking about love and, and Jesus just in so many ways showed love. And in John 13, 34, he said, a new commandment I give to you that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. Right before he says this verse, you know what he's doing? He's kneeling down in the dirty mud, naked, washing the feet of his disciples. And you know who else's feet he washed? It was Judas's feet. Jesus leaned down in the dirt, in the muck, filthy water dripping everywhere, mud, nasty, dirty feet. Not only did he wash the feet of the men who he knew would be with him and would lead out the growth of the church after he's gone, but he washed the feet of the very men who would kiss his cheek to betray him and lead him to his death. And then after that, he would say the law and the word I give to you is to love one another. He doesn't only include in that the people that we like. He includes in that the people that hate us. And that's not easy. I get it. But you know what way we accomplish that? It's through the grace of God living through us in freedom. And you know what? It doesn't mean that we allow people to take advantage of us. It doesn't mean that we're not discerning. But in the way that we pray, in the way that we, we interact with people, that it be driven, driven by this example of love that Jesus has given us. And that in all the liberty that Jesus had, you know what, when he was in the desert, he didn't feed himself. You know, all the freedom that he had when he was high on the tower, he didn't jump off and expect the angels to catch him. But he subdued that liberty because he knew he was doing it for a greater purpose to love others to offer himself as forgiveness for the forgiveness of sins, taking away sin and shame. He came as a servant. He said, I came to give my life. And that is the example of loving one another that Jesus has provided for us. That our liberty in Jesus is not for us to do all the things that we want to do. You know, when you hear that, you see that from people all the time, that they use the freedom of God. Well, God doesn't care if I do this. God doesn't care if I do this. God doesn't care if I do this. And you know what? In that sense, none of those things are taking us out of the hand of God. But you know what they are doing? They're feeding into the flesh and they're robbing us of the experience of God's grace by loving other people. We need to stop spending so much time saying what we can do and focus on what we ought to do. Let's focus on who we should be doing this for. Not what I can do for me that makes me happy, that makes me satisfied. This privilege that I have, that I can just do whatever I want because I say that I'm saved by the grace of God. No, he says, use that freedom to give to other people. Give of your time. Give of your money. Give of your resources. Give of your talents. Give outside of yourself. Stop feeding the flesh. 
Because listen, the more we feed the flesh, the more the flesh controls us. The more fear takes on, the more doubt takes on, the more selfishness takes on, the more our temptations begin to take over. Because we convince ourselves. We convince ourselves that I need this. You know, we think about all the temptations that we can potentially face and struggle in our life. Sexual, you know, any immoral uh, substance related. When we're feeding into the flesh, you know what lie we're giving into? The same lie that Adam and Eve gave into? I need this. God told me I didn't need this, but God, I just feel like I need this. What God has given us is not the right or privilege to do whatever we want. Instead, it is the spirit-given desire and ability to do what we should. And listen, there is never going to be a shortage of that. Martin Luther said this. He said, you will never lack people to whom you may do good. The world is full of people who need your help. And most of us, those people who need our help are right under our own roofs. And then he tells us in the last part, now I'll be done. What abuse of our grace leads us to? Second thing, what abuse of our grace leads us to? Galatians 5.15. He says, if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. Abuse, freedom, and legalism all lead to the same result. Competition. It leads to, it leads us, when we're abusing God's grace, in one way or the other, it leads us not to compassion, but to competition. Competition for comfort, competition for happiness, competition for status. And the most, I mean, the most relevant place that this plays out is in relationships. That if we are living and abusing the gracious freedom that God has given us, it will always lead us in the midst of our relationships to compete with each other. Because our focus is our comfort. Our focus is our happiness. Our focus is our status. Our focus is what makes me feel better. Because if we aren't living for others, we are living for ourselves. Our own self-interest and our own needs. And he tells us what that leads to. The last word he uses, or the, as he continues on in that verse, he says that you are not consumed by one another. You know, in legalism, this happens in churches when we pile on the work and we say that you, there's no way but based off of who you are or what you've done that you'll ever get to a holy God because you can't be good enough. So you might as well give up. You know what that leads to? That is the church biting and devouring leading to destruction. And then the other half of that is the open uh, grace uh, abuse where we just do whatever we want. Because you know what it always does? It always feeds more into the flesh. And you know what it always leads to? Destruction. Because we're always going to get to where we need to be when we're feeding into ourselves, abusing God's grace, doing what we want to do. You know what we're going to have to do? We're going to have to step on other people's heads to get to where we need to be to be happy. To get to where we need to be to be satisfied. To get to where we need to be to feel fulfilled in life. And Paul uses this illustration of biting, devouring, and consuming. He uses an illustration that communicates the idea of Wild animals. Living off feelings and instincts. Because listen, the thing, we were talking about this last night with our boys, the thing that sets us apart from anything else in creation is the soul and the spirit that God has placed in us. And we don't have to be driven by instinct. 
We don't even have to be driven by feelings anymore. God has given us something and has placed something in us that sets us apart from everything else in creation, even the angels. The Bible tells us the angels envy us because of what God has given to us. The power and the experience of that resurrection spirit within us. But too often as people and as churches, we want to live as wild animals consuming each other, biting each other, tearing each other apart for what? So that we can feel better about ourselves. So that we can be successful. So that we can be satisfied. The church is only the church when it exists for other people. Not dominating, but helping and serving. It must tell men of every calling what it means to live for Christ. And that is to exist for others. To exist for others. We have been given a freedom, church, as we finish up. We've been given a freedom for action and for attention. To be given to our words, this attention to be given to our deeds, that they, they are reflective of the grace that we've been given. If we're using our grace for freedom for ourselves, our own pleasure, our own good, we have missed the point of freedom and what it truly means to be free. Because if we're using the freedom God's given us for ourselves, we are not free. We are still slaves. We're slaves to a domineering ruler, and that's us and our flesh. Listen, Jake is a terrible leader to himself. Your flesh is a terrible leader for you, a terrible master to serve under, because it is unrelentingly harsh, unrelentingly selfish, unrelentingly self-indulgent. And listen, when we want to pursue the commandment God has given us to love one another, we can't think about someone else until we get outside of ourselves. And God has given us that freedom to pursue righteousness, to pursue holiness, to choose in my life. That even in my failures, remember, we talk about it, the righteous, Proverbs says, the righteous will stumble seven times, but they'll get back up. Listen, it's not about a perfect journey. But it's about a passionate pursuit, continuing to get back up. That even when I make a mistake, I get back up. Even when I fail, I get back up and I continue to pursue. But it's in racial abuse and it's against legalism that we're told that if we fall, we can't get back up. Or if we fall, this should just be where we live. But in that space where God's freedom lives, it tells us that you know what? God's grace is free, not because you've earned it, but it's also not free to not continue to pursue. God has called us to pursue because it's in that pursuit that we will benefit because we'll, we'll, we'll strain the source of life going in our flesh. Not only that, but our, the people around us will benefit because the call of God, the sum of the law is this, to love others, to serve other people. And we can do that because he continues, continues to offer us Forgiveness, And he continues to pour out grace on us. First John 1, 8-9, he says, If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive. Church, this may rock our world a little bit, but can I tell you this, that God loves you when you put your faith in Jesus and you're saved in him. God loves you as much when you're not sinning as when you are. I mean, do we truly believe that? 
Can we truly understand that? That he tells us that if we'll ask him, he'll forgive. And that the love he has for us, the desire he has for good for us, does not change because we fall into sin in our life. Romans 5.20 says, Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. In the life of the believer, when sin begins to increase, he tells us that his grace abounds even more. He has provided that way for us to continue to pursue the law. He has provided that strength within us to pursue the law by loving others, loving people outside of ourselves. Because the reality is we are the most like Christ when we have abandoned self-interest. And it is there when we find all that we need. When we have abandoned ourselves. We have abandoned pursuing what we need and what we desire. You know, too often as Christians, we're seen as more bound up and hung up than anyone else. But in reality, that's just us not living in the freedom that God's given us. Because our lives as Christians should make non-believers question their disbelief. Because of the way we're living for people. Because of the way we're loving people. The way that we're interacting with people. And like I said, it does not mean that we, we forgive and forget sin. But it's that we pursue God and His holiness. And that even in the midst of our failures, we don't give up. That God has given us a freedom. And I pray that we would not utilize that freedom for our flesh. We would not utilize that freedom to live selfishly. Gaining when we just... Taking part in what we want, what makes us happy because we feel like, because we're saved, we can't. God tells us and Paul tells us there, that is not the way God has given you this freedom. Because that freedom will lead you to biting, devouring, and eventually consuming either yourself or each other. But he says, let this freedom lead you to love one another. To serve your spouse. To serve your kids in gospel, grace, and instruction in the word. To serve your community. To serve in the local church that God has given us together. That we would use the freedom God has given us. Not for ourselves and our own comfort. But for others. Church, we bow our heads and pray together this morning. Asking Him to challenge us. Maybe asking God to reveal to you this morning where it is that He's wanting to move and mold and make something new. then maybe we need to ask forgiveness for where we've taken advantage of His grace. Maybe we need to ask you, God, to help us truly grab a hold of this freedom that you have for us and begin to live and walk in and experience it on a level we've never known before. Father God, I thank you for this day. God, I thank you for the time that you've given us to be in your word. God, I thank you so much that the freedom you've given me is not dependent on my ability. But God, I'm also thankful that you have given us the ability to proceed in the midst of that freedom. God, I pray that we would not be using our freedom in you, the grace that you've provided to abuse it. God, to feed the flesh. God, to, to feed into selfish desires, to feed into temptations that draw us to do things that we know are wrong, that draw us to do things we know hurt other people. God, because we know when we're living by the flesh, the end result is destruction. And Father God, but you've given us a calling. And that calling is a freedom. 
And that freedom calling you tell us is to pursue your law by loving one another. By laying down our pride, laying down our, our own self-interest, God, serving one another, following Jesus as that great example, getting down in the dirt with those around us, and even in times when it's the most difficult loving our enemies, praying for their salvation, praying for their good, praying for your work in their life. Father God, I pray that we would be a people that an unbelieving world would look at and envy the freedom that we have in you. Free of comparison, free of competition, free of guilt and shame, but free to live, free to walk and move. God, free to experience the life you've given us to its fullest, but not being bound by the law, but being free to pursue it for the good of those around me. God, you've called us as a church to love our neighbors, to love the people around us, and to do good and to want good for them. Father God, let us be those people. God, let us not be the legalists. Let us, not be, let us be the church that uses our freedom to abuse others. It uses our freedom to smother others. Let us not live to win arguments. But let us live to convince people of who you are by the way we've lived our lives. God, let us not abuse this freedom, Lord. Father God, I just pray for our church. I pray that you would just continue to lead us and guide us in the direction you have for us. God, we're thankful for what you've given us, and I pray we would never take it for granted, God. Again, thank you for your word. God, just do a work in our hearts. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.